Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadler. And on this special edition of my show today, I will be having a conversation with three leading experts of global industry who possess a keen understanding of globalization and insight on leading in the private sector during a global pandemic. In addition, they are extremely knowledgeable on the subject matter of the impact of geopolitical policies on international trade and the future of global business. Mr. Colin Morton is originally from Scotland and has lived and worked in Italy for all of his adult life. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering and his MBA from Warwick Business School, a Master's degree in Political Science and Economics from London School of Economics, and a Master's in Global Business from Syed Business School at Oxford University. Colin has worked exclusively in the private sector in a variety of industrial sectors, including aerospace, chemical, automotive, and currently in the synthetic textile plastic recycling industry. His global experience includes projects in Europe, Russia, India, the Middle East, and the United States. Colin calls Milan, Italy, his home. Mr. Terry Michael from Melbourne, Australia, provides business and consulting services for the top 100 companies within the Asia-Pacific region and has been educated in the changing dynamic intersection of technology, business, and politics within this region for over a decade. He is a 2014 graduate of Harvard Business School and completed a master's program in global business at Syed Business School at Oxford University in 2018. He has written many articles for the Australian Institute of Company Directors focusing on technology, cybersecurity, and business risk and rewards within the Asia-Pacific region, while being the deputy chairperson of Bendigo Community Bank. And my final guest is the Right Honorable Baroness Ruby McGregor-Smith, a member of the House of Lords in the UK Parliament. Ms. Smith is the former CEO of Mitte Group. She was the first Asian female CEO of a FTSE 250 company and is an advocate for gender diversity in the workplace. Ms. Smith possesses numerous awards and accolades for her achievements in the private sector and for her generous contributions and leadership on a variety of boards and community charitable organizations. She holds an economics degree from Kingston's College and completed her master's program in global business at Syed Business School at Oxford University. I would like to welcome all three of these distinguished leaders to Breaking Protocol. So Colin, I would like to ask you this morning and, and get the conversation started. Uh, the Western Hemisphere has focused a great deal on the protocols that have taken place in Italy as it pertains to coronavirus. What we would like to know is in the private sector, private sector business in Italy, companies such as the ones that uh, you are involved with, where is private sector today and how are they continuing to function 
with the restrictions that the Italian government has in place. Thank you very much, Bob, for inviting me. I think, as everybody knows, Italy was the first country hit seriously outside of China. It hit Italy hard and fast. We had maybe about uh, 250,000 infected people, and but more than that, a mortality rate of about 15%, which is really high in terms of the population. One five, Colin, one five percent? Fifteen percent, yes. It's always about 50% of the infected people ended up losing the battle. So we had a, we had a, really a government crisis here. In these moments of crisis, you need a government with a strong government, which is able to make decisions. Uh, unfortunately, the Italian government was moving in uncharted waters. Nobody really knew how to deal with this situation. Uh, and I think the Italian government, to give it credit, moved fast. It did uh, what it thought was right at that moment. And we, uh, it basically closed down the service sector and effectively paralyzed the manufacturing sector. And from about the end of February, we went into a two and a half to three month lockdown period. What percentage of, of the GDP of Italy is based on the service sector? Do you have that? information yeah well you've got let's think about it in this concept that italy is the second largest manufacturing country in europe after germany so manufacturing dominates for us the service sector probably is around about 40 40 to 45 percent of the the gdp and that was effectively closed out from from morning till evening manufacturing struggled a little bit the italians are very creative people so we the, the, they invented basically a series of protocols to try to keep business open as long as possible. But as the economic situation in Europe worsened, it became more and more difficult for Italian industry to, to operate. And the most of it shut down for that two and a half month period. Um, in terms of, uh, of uh, government uh, involvement in this, you know, the, the government immediately launched a, a substantial uh, rescue package for the industrial sector and the commercial sector, um, guaranteeing unemployment benefit and social support for the temporary laid off workers. And perhaps more importantly, announced no redundancies by law until August. So companies are effectively required to keep the employee, employees employed on their books until August. And the government moved promising money for grants for self-employed people and loans for small to medium-sized industry and larger industries. They moved a little bit also in the, in the way of tax breaks and uh, deferred payments on uh, taxation. Ruby, in, in staying within the boundaries of Europe for the moment, the UK clearly was less impacted as far as coronavirus numbers. But economically, it it appeared that it did follow suit with the rest of Europe as far as uh, the economic impact. Where is the UK today in relation to the West, rest of Europe? I mean, clearly, we went into lockdown later than Italy. I recall the night Italy decided to lock down. We followed suit not too long afterwards. And we're still in partial lockdown. The messages still work from home unless you can't. So the, the, the impact on the UK is a little bit different to Italy. 
So in, in the UK, 81% of our economy is service-based and 84% of jobs are in the service sector. So clearly we've got some very different challenges. And one of the, the things I would observe is around resilience of supply chains as well. It became more challenging for us because we were so reliant on some global supply chains. And I think as we come out of this, that's going to be something we really start to look at and change because we were not as resilient as we could have been with some of the supply chains we needed even for PPE kit. The government, again, um, put a huge amount of support in when we went into lockdown. We um, announced a furlough scheme, which meant that you could employees could basically up to, could be paid by the government up to a certain amount for up to three months. That scheme still remains in place. It's being phased out in October. We've announced a significant level of different types of loans for organisations, ranging from very large to very small across all business areas. The support has been extensive, but we still are not sure if it's actually going to be wide enough. So we are not coming out of this yet. We are still, um, we, we now have over 40,000 deaths. The deaths are certainly on the curve going down and the rates of infections are dropping. They're half of what they were, say, two to three weeks ago, but we're still having some real challenges. But as the economy starts to open up, you know, we want to do things here differently. I mean, there's already a lot of discussion around how we build a more sustainable economy, what we do about low, uh, having a low-based carbon economy, what, we, what kind of different businesses we want to open up, what we can do in manufacturing that's different. So opportunities will come out of this. But at the moment, you know, we, we haven't even got our shops open unless it's essential. So we're still in, in quite a difficult place. But there is a conversation going on in the UK in both the public and private sector around what the future looks like and how to adjust and make adjustments for the future as you move down the road. No, absolutely. And I think every country is going to do, do the same, but we've got to do it a bit differently. We've been massively impacted because we are mainly a service sector country. And currently, you know, we've got millions of jobs in, say, hospitality, that, and we can't open up anything. And, and also when we come back, social distancing is a challenge, you know, so we'll be down on our productivity significantly, but just because of social distancing. If and when a vaccine's coming, you know, we've got to get better treatments. What type of mortality rate do you have with coronavirus in the UK? We have around 300,000 confirmed cases and we've had 40,000 deaths. But we think the, the number of cases, that's only for those that were being tested. And our testing regime was different to other countries. So when we went into lockdown, we were only testing individuals who were in hospital. And now that testing regime has been extended significantly over the last two to three weeks, but we still don't have a, a contact and tracing system in place. That's being developed at the moment for later, because until we've got a testing regime in place, particularly, I think, for the private sector, we are still going to have challenges on productivity. Terry, Australia has been a rather unique scenario, I would say, globally, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, not the least of which, Australia itself is relatively isolated from the rest of the world. Also, my understanding is Australia was able to, aside from just being isolated from the rest of the world, close its borders relatively effectively compared to other countries. Can you share some information on the protocols that the government uh, implemented early? And then again, how that impacted your private sector? Um uh, we actually had three goes uh, or three practices on getting COVID right. 
about a decade ago, we had SARS and MERS, and the region really knew what was coming at it. So when we locked down, we locked down very hard and early. And the uh, steps that uh, Ruby's talking about, well, they were they were implemented late February, early March, which we basically sat there and said people flying in are quarantined and um, tested as well. So the figures that we have at the moment for that sort of strategy, I guess you could say, uh, go hard, go early, was the uh, campaign uh, in the government. Uh, today we have 7,200 cases in total, of which 6,700 recovered and only 102 deaths to date. 102 deaths total for the country. That's extraordinary. And then numbers, just to sort of knit that information to other countries in the region. So when you look around China, MERS and SARS that came out, Taiwan has similar numbers, Japan, Korea, Singapore, those countries that ring around China. New Zealand yesterday, uh, Jacinta uh, at Hearn, the uh, PM, uh, declared the country coronavirus free. So in the region, we sort of knew what we were dealing with very early just because of that. And we actually weren't really following WHO, but we were following countries like Taiwan and Singapore mm. and what we're doing. And from that, we really just built our uh, response system around that sort of figure, uh, those sort of figures. And, that, and that's where we are today. We're now eventually coming out of lockdown. Where we're going to go is we're, we're funded, uh, people that have lost their jobs, uh, funded till the end of September uh, through a government scheme. And at the end of the day, their government very much, again, early, knowing what was going on, worked with industry players to say, not in months but in weeks, we are sending your employees home, start spinning up your disaster recovery plans around something like this. So that that is the in very short point form. That is how Australia is where it is today. So just to clarify, Australians are pay protected through a government protocol through the end of September, correct? That's correct. Italians are pay protected through a government protocol through the end of August. August. In the UK, are there pay protections for those who have been? Pay protections for those earning up to 25K and your companies can then top it up. And those are in place until the end of July and then being tapered out by, by the end of October. So we, so roughly the U.S.'s unemployment protections are similar. Now, let's move this conversation forward as it pertains to global trade. And what is the position of Australia, Italy and the U.K. in its relationship to global trade and your global trading partners? Where uh, do you see the future what will be most effective uh, for your country and region? Ruby, I'll start with you since probably you are 
the U- the United Kingdom is the most recognized trading partner of the three of you with the United States? I think with us, you know, while we're in the middle of this uh, pandemic, we are also negotiating with the European Union to leave the transition arrangements that we're in. They finish on the 31st of December. And so we're right in the middle of of a critical negotiation around how we will trade with the European Union. And nothing has changed despite the pandemic. We want a really good, fair trade deal with the European Union. They are our closest partner and we want them to continue to be our closest partner. But there's a tough negotiation to be had about how that's going to work and how that gives us more freedom to strike the trade deals we want elsewhere. The certainly Department of Trade is definitely really focused on the number of trade deals that can begin to sign around the world. Do you think that Brexit has been a positive influence uh, as a result of coronavirus, or has it made it more difficult for the UK? You know, I, I, I think it's still too early to say. I think it's going to be, it, it's a, you know, we haven't released our unemployment numbers since February. So we will be They'll be out soon, so we'll know where we were. We had record employment before we hit COVID. So that's yet to come out. At the moment, the focus has very much been on, on the fact that we believe we can recover and we can bounce back and that we will be better outside the European Union in the long term rather than within it. Time will tell if that is going to be the case. Um, but I think that we want a really good trade deal with the European Union and we want to have, uh, and we will continue uh, along the path of striking uh, trade deals with other countries as we come out. But there's a lot to do. The big thing about Britain is we are, we want to continue to be very global in our outlook. You know, when you take a look at London and its global reach and, and what it has done for the UK economy, we want that not just to be London, we want that to be our other big cities as well. We want to be right in the centre of a big global trade community. And I think that will continue. So despite the fact that we're going through the challenges of this, I think it will be quite exciting. So interesting that you make that comment about global trade in the UK. Your philosophy, so to speak, and I'm assuming this is a combination of public and private sector, has actually uh, confirmed that globalization is the path forward for the UK unlike other countries that have, including, I might say, the United States that has, under the current leadership, pulled back on, I would say, global philosophy with a uh, with the continued doubling down of America first and a renegotiation of any trade agreement that would highly benefit uh, the United States, especially during this time. And that I can understand the position that the government wants to move forward with trade opportunity that is beneficial. But I would have to say under the current administration, beneficial is a two-way street. And currently, we don't seem to be heading down that path. I think the, the, the reality is this, is that we've always believed very much in having global trade partners. Without a doubt, what the pandemic has taught the UK is that we need some more resilience in our supply chains. So Britain, British companies will be expanding on what they do. And I think we will, you know, manufacturing compared to when we did, when manufacturing for much of the UK was outsourced to China and other countries, say 25, 30 years ago, there is very much a view that manufacturing has changed. So for example, today, you know, 
car manufacturing is actually car assembly. Technology has moved on so quickly, there is a lot more we could do ourselves. And I think that you will see Britain do more of that themselves, but that doesn't stop us having um, global trade partners for the areas where we want to trade, and they will be significant for us. And I still think that's the right long-term way to be in the world. Colin, Italy was clearly, as you indicated earlier, the hardest hit country in Europe. It it was highly impacted, uh, specifically the service industry and private sector. According to OECD forecast, which Italy is a member country of the of the OECD, there are two scenarios. There is we are on the recovery from coronavirus now, and the forecast will continue in an upward trajectory at this stage of the game, or we will experience a second wave. Is there any indication from the government sector in preparation for a second wave in Italy? And if so, what protocols are in place and how do you see uh, the recovery being prolonged as a result of it? Some of the things that Ruby were seeing were very relevant also to Italy, but uh, the pandemic has really exposed the vulnerability of the European Union of which Italy is part of the European Union. So the 27 countries which make up the largest free trading area in the world, at the moment of the outbreak of the pandemic, the system basically fell apart. So the, the free movement of people within the Schengen area, for example, which is made up of 19 countries, if I remember correctly, each of those countries systematically closed their borders. So there was a retrenching of, a, of national governments as each of them uh, decided how the best to treat the, the pandemic with inside their territorial area. The problem that comes from this is that it's never a problem of the infection being outside of your country and you're protecting your country. By that time, the virus was everywhere in Europe. And we had, with a couple of weeks difference in time, we had basically a semi-synchronized shutdown of all of Europe in this case. And it's really important to understand here that export, manufacturing export from each of the European countries, more than 75% of that export goes to another country with inside Europe. Mm. So uh, if you suddenly have borders being closed and difficulty to move goods around from one country to another, manufacturing becomes very difficult and so securing your supply chain, even if it's inside the same free trade area as Europe. So manufacturing, for example, if you come back to that, yeah, they're, in Italy, they're pushing really hard to open again. The protocols are in place and they're being inventive about how to protect their, their staff and their, their processes, etc. But we are so interconnected between the European countries in terms of trade today that until the, the economic situation stabilizes within Europe, it's very difficult to understand how a single country will, will emerge out of this as being a, a, a winner. We, there's, a, there's a great saying that none of us will be safe until we're all safe. You know, it's very interesting that you make a comparison to the European Union and Brussels in relation to leadership and what each individual country has done. It's if I can draw the same comparison to the United States, we had a lack of national protocol uh, 
the protocols were left to each individual state, which created, and early on, it created a competition, if you will, between each governor of the states, especially those that were hit hardest uh, in procuring proper PPE and other uh, essentials needed to protect those particular constituencies against the virus. What I wanted to ask you, Colin, because of your familiarity with operations in the United States through previous conversations we've had, and that is that you and the company in which uh, you're affiliated with, you have traveled frequently to the southeast part of the United States, Georgia, the Carolinas, that area. That particular part of the U.S., specifically Georgia, uh, endured a very, very short lockdown. Uh, for all practical purposes, it's it and the state in which I live, Texas, we're basically open for business. Very little protocols in place. They're, the protocols that are in place are suggested protocols. And we are now already in Texas seeing another spike as a result of our open for business path forward, if you will. How has that impacted your company's overall philosophy as based on your operations in the U.S. and how that has impacted your operations in Italy? A very good question, Bob. And there's a very nice comparison between what would be commonly considered the liberal market economy, which would be the U.K. and the U.S. as being the two prime examples in the world, based on fast capitalism, a less tolerance for losing money, more focused on making money, turnaround of business, etc. That contrasts very clearly with the slow form of capitalism we're used to here in Europe today. So more, more tolerance, a more long-term orientated view, and a more tolerance on perhaps making less money, but retaining your workforce, for example. So I can see within our company, for example, we reduced immediately and significantly our direct workforce in the US. At the same time in Europe, we retained it. Same company, same product, same manufacturing sector. So there's a very clear contrast between those. I think it comes back to what we were saying earlier. Yes, Italy has, the government has guaranteed a certain income for those people directly affected by the by the, the pandemic. They are offering social safety nets for the economically challenged part of society. But it's interesting to remember two aspects about this that are, that are important. The first is that people will get money, they will get some money to live, but they get no social security contributions. So in terms of the their end of their career retirement, it's as if they were unemployed for that period of time. So they will ultimately mm -hmm. lose money on that part of the business. And the government, for example, the government in Italy made a lot of promises, pledged a lot of money early on, but that, Italy doesn't have the possibility to print money. The money can only be printed by the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, and that money still has not arrived from the, the European Union through the, the recovery fund. So Italy has made a lot of pr promises to it, say, its workforce, but really the money has not filtered down through. So there's a lot of economic suffering at a private level, 
and also at a, an industry or a commercial level, the loans and grants and the safety nets for the small to medium-sized industry, which is predominant in Italy, have not yet materialized. So basically, the system is suffering by a failure of Europe to move fast and decisive together. Brussels is still arguing about whether the rich countries should fund the, the poorer countries, whilst we have in Italy nearly 35,000 deaths from the, the, the pandemic. And I think we will move from a, a virus-related crisis, the pandemic, we will move into an economic crisis where people will struggle to survive as and when the redundancy restrictions are lifted, I think, in around about the middle of August is the predicted date for that. Let's move back to Australia for a moment. Terry, what is the perception in the private sector in Australia at the moment as far as where it's looking six months to a year out of where its recovery will be based? Is it primarily in the Asian markets or is Australia, because of the success that it has had in dealing with the pandemic, will it seek a more global approach? Back in the 90s, Australia recognised itself as being part of Asia and uh, started building uh, its economic uh, future into the Asian ecosystem that's out there at the moment. Asian tigers that were coming up, Thailand, uh, Korea, etc. They they basically had uh, a, a middle class that was growing and still growing and still wants to grow. The, uh, the next six months has been a topic of discussion in Australia for a while, back, back in March, April. We are seeing uh, what uh, most economists were looking at uh, back then, which is uh, a, a nice V-shaped curve. So we have infections at uh, 7,200. They don't think <clears throat> it's going to grow too much more. Uh, today, the country nationally had a growth in infections of two. So, you know, we haven't had a death for three, four weeks now. So we're not far off calling it quits from a coronavirus, similar to New Zealand. What we recognise is that coronavirus has now put a filter on trade and growth of a country. And I think Colin and, and uh, Ruby brought some of that out in their discussions. Um, vaccine or no vaccine, this stuff's going to be around for at least three to five years. And we are looking at uh, not only travel bubbles, as they're starting to be called, but also trade bubbles. So we're going to, by the end of the month, uh, have uh, tra uh, travel going between us and New Zealand, but also a lot of trade business starting to happen. And we will then knit to Singapore, who's got similar numbers, Japan, Korea. Korea's got about 100 deaths. Japan's about the same. Uh, certainly Taiwan. So we're we're now putting out a bit of a a, a a network of countries that have got strong tracing for coronavirus. Have automated that with AI. Uh, it's uh, an app that's on your phone. We just carbon copied Singapore's app 
25, 30% of the population have downloaded, but that's that's been six weeks, seven weeks of that stuff. And effectively that app will become a, a bit of a like a passport for if you want to enter the country and you don't want two weeks of isolation before you enter and then enter back in to your country of origin and then spend another two weeks, that app with that contract tracing and the processes around that uh, and low infection, low deaths, that will become the next six to 12 months of what regional trade looks like. And then we will knit out beyond that into a global scene. Uh, coronavirus is now a filter on trade. Terry, how much of a result of the success that Australia is seeing today is based on leadership strictly from the public sector or the private sector, or is it a combination of a real cooperative approach between the two? It is a cooperative approach, but to pick up Ruby's point, we've had three practice goes, MERS, SARS, bird flu, and know what that means. So before I move on to another subject, there's two specific things I want you to answer for me, Terry. One, in relation to the comments you made about the contact tracing app, is that a voluntary opportunity for citizens? And how much of the population has bought into utilizing that app? It's getting close to 30%. It is voluntary. Most of the population that has bought into it are people that are moving into back into uh, business sectors where they are going to be have people around. Is there any paranoid-based resistance to utilizing such an app? Uh, look, there was uh, certainly more than a deep dive discussion around privacy. Uh, Singapore has, uh, uh, you know, a, a very strong state approach, state capitalist approach. And uh, you, you are more or less taking care of not only your community, but also your household as well. Well, I suppose another word for that would be, as opposed to voluntary, would be opportunity. You had the opportunity to actually get tested. Uh, Melbourne is four and a half million and 25% of the population has been tested uh, over that three months. And it's been very laser guided and targeted. It's not just anyone walking up because contact tracing, government working with business, working with the community, it was the, the processes and procedures and now the automation was in lockstep. The UK in relation to Italy and Australia is the most diverse country uh, of the three. And what I would, and I know that you have some experience and knowledge on this subject matter, Ruby, uh, black and minority communities in the United States, specifically the black community uh, has a higher death rate. Now, in many cases, that's a result of those being frontline employees who were unable to actually shelter in place, if you will. How's the UK dealt with the minority population? And how do you see the minority population continuing to be impacted on a global scale? I think we're certainly seeing here, we've just done a review of, of who has been affected and certainly the death rate if you're from a 
Bain background is higher. And particularly if, if you think around frontline workers and you think about the structural um, challenges that we've certainly had in the UK and actually happens globally as well on race. So in the UK, many of our frontline workers in the NHS, many of our frontline workers in transportation are, are more of them are of a Bain background. Therefore, it is more likely they will be, um, they, they will, you know, they will, they will come into contact with the virus. So we, it's a challenge and the challenge isn't going to go away. And, and, and we've seen from the impact of last week and the absolute tragedy in the US of the death of George Floyd, what it's done in the UK is just raised and invoked many, many, many protests. But the protests are wider than what happened. The protests are around um, structural, deliberate discrimination, which has led to where we are. And so as an example, as we open up, okay, who's going to be more prone to getting the virus? Those on the front line, you know? For those in better paid jobs, many are going to be working from home still. They're going to be able to shelter, as you say. Um, but out on that front line, whatever the jobs may be, um, and, and I look at our hospitality industry, which has been really, you know, many are, are not working currently, but as they come back into work, then it's very likely we will get a second wave as well. Um, but, it's, but also, I think, we, you know, in the UK, we've got some other challenges. We've got an aging population, and so you're 70 times more likely to die if you're over the age of 80 than you are if, if you're, say, in your 40s. So we've got a real challenge on shielding the over 70s. We've got a real challenge on the Bain populations who are very much in the front line as well. Um, and there's a lot of work to do on that. And that won't happen overnight. That'll take a generation um, to start beginning to resolve some of those, those challenges, which I think can be resolved, but we shouldn't underestimate the extent of the task here to do that. And I think that will be the same in many countries around the world. Colin? In Italy, you live in a more homogenous society. Italy is not globally known as a, as, a, a, as a diverse community. It's a country of Italians. With that said, clearly you have minority populations, specifically in, for example, the city that you live in, Milan. Is there an impact, a greater impact to minority population in Italy versus the more homogenous population of Italians. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting discussion. We have a lot, we have a high percentage, higher percentage than other European countries of migrant workers. These are people coming across either politically, migrating for political reasons or economic reasons. They basically come across the Mediterranean into Italy, but their final destination is some other country within the European Union today. These people, unfortunately, are right on the edge of, of a civil society today. They are marginalized, etc. These people today, what was interesting was there was a, a clear move by the central government and the regional governments to protect those people. These are people that also require a health protection. The people that were previously homeless because of the pandemic, suddenly had shelter for, provided for them by regional authorities. So this was good. I think there was an interesting comment just as that. I think the Italians today, and you're right, the Italian nation today is not, is, is a very homogeneous uh, 
society, although it has differences between the North and the South. But the Italians basically, we today, the Italians are, are experiencing exclusion because of the high uh, infection rates that the country suffered. Greece recently opened its tourist trade and allowed European countries to, to select European countries to, to uh, allow the tourists to travel to Greece. And Italy finds itself off of that list today. So Italians, tourism for Italy, for Italians are noted for being tourists. They, they travel a lot. Not to be able to travel to certain parts of the world is something which we as a country are now starting to get used to. We have as one of the four pillars of the European Union, the free movement of people within the European Union. And today, that's not possible to certain countries like Greece, for example, even although from an epidemical perspective, the, the amount of uh, residual infections or virus which is existing in Italy today is marginal. It's no more than in Germany, for example. But notwithstanding this, we're excluded from the possibility, at least at the present date, from traveling to for our summer holidays to, to Greece, which would be the equivalent for you in the U.S. traveling to the Caribbean for your summer holidays. Where is globalization as far as our future opportunity? Who's going to benefit the most? Countries that execute policy now and capitalize on globalized opportunities or countries that stay somewhat isolated from other countries, such as the relationship between Greece and Italy? Uh, globalization, I think, um, needs to point into Asia there. So for me, the growth of that middle class at the moment is an economic powerhouse uh, from Thailand all the way up to South Korea. That whole region seems to be the go. And globalization when I look at Europe and, uh, and America there, I think you're going to find trading packs rather than the open liberal arrangements that we had probably less than 12 months ago, you know, over 12 months ago, where you, you saw the, the Pacific, uh, the TPP uh, basically being abandoned by Trump. That was a trading pack. The Asian ASEAN, the ASEAN trading pact will reform itself so that, and the APAC, Asia Pacific uh, trading pact, which again, America's part of, but has withdrawn out of that, that, uh, that framework altogether. Ruby, thoughts on globalization and an interesting comment that Terry made regarding trading pacts. You know, I think I agree with Terry. It's going to be trading packs. I mean, from Britain's perspective, we're no longer part of Europe. So we're, we're up to look for, for trade, uh, A, how we're going to trade with Europe, but actually we want big trading packs. I want, we want as many relationships as we can have globally. I mean, we are striking out on our own for the first time since the 1970s, really, when we became part of what was the common market. Um, and so for us, it's incredibly important that we we now have that. Um, but but equally, and, 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 and actually Colin made an interesting point earlier around how what happened in this pandemic is, you know, suddenly borders shut everywhere in what was one of the freest places in the world to go across borders in Europe before. I think we're going to see 
many countries not be able to think about global trade for a while and who will become more isolated from the world. But hopefully Britain won't be one of those. Colin? Italy, 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 like many countries, eh, can only think about participating in a new globalized world only when it sets up its, when it sorts out its own economy, first of all. And the, the key to this, in my view, is countries all over the world, and every country has been affected in uh, different ways, but in many ways, similar ways as well. They first of all have to sort out their, their, their economy, and that's going to take monetary policies. The amount of money that's being invested into the economies or made available to the economies are enormous amounts, never seen before. But it's not only that. The countries has to sort out, has to face the, the crisis, economic crisis, through, through a fiscal policy as well. And that's going to need money as well to, to, to finance. But that's no use unless you have a strong government and a government that knows how to spend the money and how to man maximize the benefits from the, the investments of which are being made in the economy. And only when they get those three components correct will each of the countries be ready to face the new globalized world as it pans out in the, in the near future. Well, there's no doubt we're all in extremely uncharted waters. Clearly, Nobody is on the exact same path moving forward, but all of you have been extraordinarily insightful. I appreciate your time. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today, and please click and subscribe for notification of future podcasts. And if you haven't had the opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle tablet, or smartphone. Thank you again for joining us and many blessings.